You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I met up with Radia Chaudhry at the Malvern Mall in Scarborough. It's a neighborhood in the northeastern part of Toronto, Canada. When we talked on the phone, she described it as the best mall in the world. So I guess you could say I had high expectations. I pulled into the parking lot and couldn't help but feel a little cheated. Okay, we're here. It's just an average mall, a one-story brick building that stretches several blocks. There's a grocery store on one end and a gym on the other, with fast food and retailers spaced throughout. Nothing about it seems special. Hey, welcome to Malvern Mall. So this is the best mall in the world? Well, no, not at all. That's sort of a joke that I have between me and my friends where I tell them this is the best mall because it obviously isn't. (laughs) There's a lot of very random stores inside, but the best place is definitely the food court. Okay. So growing up, we used to come here every Tuesday. They had a halal KFC. So Toonie Tuesday was the spot to be. Nice. They have a halal Hakka Chinese Indian spot, which we go to all the time. And then they have... Filipino food, they have a subway. But for me, during COVID, I come for the bubble tea, 100%. What's so special about the bubble tea? It's not a particularly special bubble tea place. It's just, you know, I'll do my work, I'm in this whole COVID bubble, and then you want a break. You want to sort of venture out of your four walls. And so I come here, I get a nice big thing of bubble tea, and I get some cream buns from Kin Kin, and I'm good to go. Nice. Okay, well, I'm a little skeptical. That's fair. I'm excited to to get inside. Okay, let's go. Okay. The inside was just as unimpressive as the outside. Ah, thank you for holding the door. There were some discount stores, a food court, and an interior that looked like it hadn't been updated since it was first built. We ordered and waited for our bubble tea. The original milk tea with tapioca. Could I get a small pina colada with tapioca? That sounds so fun. (laughs) I love pina coladas. (laughs) Thank you. This meetup happened recently, so we were wearing masks and had to take our drinks outside due to COVID restrictions. Yeah, okay, thank you so much, bye. There's your pina colada. Um, do you want some hand sanitizer? Yes, please. Okay, first sip, are we ready? I took a sip of the tea, still waiting for something amazing to happen. Mm. That's pretty good bubble tea. Yeah, mm-hmm. does it compare? Definitely. And don't get me wrong, the bubble tea was really good. The best I've had in a long time. But there was something in Radia's tea that just wasn't in mine. I think it was a feeling of home. This mall was one of the first malls she'd ever been to in her life. It's where she came for lunch in high school with friends. She even learned how to drive in the parking lot here. You wouldn't come here unless you lived here. Like, there's no reason for you to do that. And Malvern Mall itself is very reflective of the community here. So it's meant to serve the people who live here. It's not so much meant to, you know, win any awards or be a very beautiful spectacle. For me, as someone who lives in this community, that means a lot because they're not trying to be anything they're not. They're just trying to serve the people who live here. Um, And I hope that they never bulldoze Malvern Mall. I will come here and chain myself to these pillars if you ever try to take away Malvern Mall. We all have these places that we hold close to our hearts. And sure, it's frustrating when people don't see them the way we do. Where I was seeing a rundown mall in the suburbs, Radia was seeing childhood memories and independence. Today, we're taking a closer look at another one of these unexpected places to see what it can teach us about community.
Allow me to show you something. I'm Stephanie Phillips, and this is Curta. <laughs> Roddy is going to take it from here. Here's the thing about Malvern Mall. You'd never think twice about it. You probably wouldn't even visit it unless you lived here. And in many ways, the same can be said for Scarborough. For outsiders, Scarborough is a suburban district that makes up the easternmost part of Toronto, Canada's most populous city. From the outside eye, the perception of Scarborough has commonly been, well, negative. Consumed by media coverage that's historically focused primarily on crime and poverty, Scarborough gained a reputation for being a dangerous place with not much to do. But people don't really give us a fair shot. And just as the food court at Malvern Mall has served as a paradigm of the cultural identity of surrounding areas, Scarborough's food scene is a unique encapsulation of the communities that made this place home, who transformed it into having one of the best food scenes you'll ever experience in your life. This story is about the place I know best. It's about vibrant communities east of the sprawling downtown core, about a buffet of experiences made up by folks who found themselves here after seeking refuge, or escaping war, or pursuing a better life for them and their families, and creating something truly special along the way. And to tell this story, I'm going to take you on a tour of the place I call home. My story starts before I was born, in the 80s, when my parents decided to make this their home. My name is Asad Choudhury. So I'm Radia's dad, came in Canada, 1982. My name is Shamim Choudhury. And I'm Radia's mom, and I came with my husband 1982 to Scarborough with two children. The story of immigration, though, often includes the story of colonization. This land is the traditional territory of many First Nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. In the 1790s, European settlers came and claimed land already inhabited. As their population expanded, the immigration policy listed ideal settlers in a descending preference. British, Americans, French, Belgians, Dutch, Scandinavians, Swiss, Finns, Russians, and so on. At the bottom of the list, folks deemed less likely to assimilate and therefore undesirable were Italians, South Slavs, Greeks, and Syrians. At the very bottom were Asian, Black, and Jewish people. But times have changed considerably since then. Scarborough's story, and its colorful food scene, is now primarily shaped by the communities at the bottom of the list, the people once deemed undesirable. But uh, it was mostly white area. The apartment we lived in, the apartment building, were all white and mostly from European, I think. At that point, I don't think any people from Asian country migrated at that time. You hardly saw any Muslim in the, on the street. One time... We were driving by and my one of my daughters, she was three years old. 
she saw a woman with hijab. She got so excited. She screamed out, there's a Muslim, there's a Muslim, Muslim. And we were, you know, she was shocked to see a lady with a hijab. And if you went to the supermarket with a hijab, headscarf, people would stare at us like we came from the zoo or something. They just stared at us and they would follow us. And I remember we went to a Chinese store, we saw mango and we were just looking at it. So this white lady comes and said, what is this? How do you eat that? Where did it come from? She asked me a thousand questions of the mango. They didn't know what the mango was. So I had to explain to her what mango is. That That's how it was. These all sorts of food and everything was that real at that time. Immigrants from Bangladesh originally, my parents were coming to Canada by way of New York City after my dad graduated with a master's from Columbia University. My parents decided they wanted a slower pace than what they were living through in 80s Harlem. My dad got a job at University of Toronto, but downtown living was far more expensive than they could afford. So they settled near Kennedy Subway Station in Scarborough before eventually moving to a neighborhood called Timberbank. Mostly Greek and Italian people in that area. Within about five, six years, the demography started changing. The people started moving out and different people of different countries started moving moving into that area. During these early years, getting ingredients to make traditional Bengali dishes was a mission. It certainly wasn't as easy as perusing the ethnic aisle. We had to go all the way to Jura Street yeah. to get any kind of spice because you won't find spice in any of the supermarket. Then they didn't even know what clove and uh, what chili pepper and uh, these things were. So we had to go to the Indian store and we would buy in bulk everything in five pounds, 10 pounds, and then start. we started our cooking from yeah, there. There's no, there no store. The way we have every two, one kilometer apart, there are so many stores, Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Sri Lankan. They contain all the, the spices. I think there was about three or four Indian stores with spices uh, in, yeah. in Jarrah Street. That's all. And when it came to buying halal meat, like your sandwich bologna or hot dogs, they drive all the way west across the city. And eating out? Forget about it. Even though I was born in the mid-90s, I still only ever remember going out to eat a couple times a year, if that. I remember the long drive to a Somali restaurant called Hamdi's just to get some halal steak. But there was no restaurant, even the bread. You know, you buy Wonder Bread? Wonder Bread had lard, which is bone marrow from the pig. So we couldn't eat, we couldn't eat the bread. We couldn't go to any kind of um, restaurants because they all had, there was no halal. Burger King only had fish fillet that we could eat. McDonald's, the bun had lard in it. So it was very hard to find any food that we could eat outside. So I decided to make everything. I started buying them a ground beef and experimented making burgers, uh, fries, anything the children wanted to eat because they're not halal. So I started making it. And, uh, and Alhamdulillah, it was successful. They liked it. Even though they complained sometimes, everybody eats outside, how, ca- how come we can't go? So we explained to them and they understood. As my dad points out, this is unheard of today. Pretty much wherever you go in Scarborough, Muslim-owned or not, it's not difficult at all to find halal food to eat. 
In fact, the options are kind of overwhelming. As time progressed, a circuit of go-to halal restaurants popped up. I remember a lot of Indian and Pakistani cuisine, one Chinese-Indian Hakka place called Good Luck, which still exists today, and of course, Popeyes. The last one usually surprises non-Muslims, but I genuinely thought Popeyes was a halal restaurant as a kid because they'd sell it at the mosque every Friday after prayer. Turns out the person who franchised it in Toronto in the 80s was Muslim. But other than these few trendsetters, there's no way my parents could have seen the halal boom coming. And while they arrived during a wave of immigration, right on the cusp of things changing, I can't imagine what it was like for the communities who'd been living here. Trying to dig up histories of those communities isn't terribly easy either. There just isn't that much recorded. But University of Toronto Scarborough campus, home to the country's first food studies program, has been working diligently to spotlight Scarborough's diverse food scene and the stories of the communities who helped create it. My name is Joita. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And in particular, I am a founder member of the Culinaria Research Centre. The research centre started at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. It began as a personal and professional journey of many of the staff and students to understand how Canadian newcomers created what Joyita calls a culinary hub for the global city. One of the courses I pioneered at the University of Toronto was a course that looks at different uh, laboring histories of the British Empire and, of course, a hugely important history which intersects very closely with Toronto and Scarborough is the history of the South Asian indentured labourers. These South Asian indentured labourers were made to work on plantations in the Caribbean and many of the subsequent generations eventually came to Canada. So in my Scarborough classes, it is an amazing experience for me when I talk about roti or when I talk about, you know, the other foods of the Caribbean and how they emerge out of the life and work of indentured laborers to have students in that class or community caterers who we, you know, then connect with, whose lives and the lives of whose ancestors have involved those histories. And those histories have hardly been written down. So it is literally true, eating, tasting, talking about those histories that we make them come alive. Paradigm will be back after this quick break. As it stands, the three largest populations in Scarborough are South Asian, Chinese, and Black, in that order. By the time my parents moved out of Timberbank in the mid-90s, the whole thing had changed. I think a lot of people from Asia, from um, India, Pakistan, Sri Lankan, eventually all the white people started moving out of Timberbank. And all the Sri Lankans and Jamaican, they started moving into Timberbank. Yeah. At that time, the, this uh, Sri Lankan crisis uh, was going on. Sri Lankan crisis? Sri Lankan crisis. A lot of Sri Lankans was fleeing from Sri Lankan come to Canada, and they are, they are a starting point in Toronto. The Civil War? Yeah. yeah. Civil War, right. So that way, this area, tremendous Sri Lankan people came. Lot, lot. With less than 150 Tamil residents in Toronto in 1983, this city is now home to one of the largest Tamil-speaking populations outside of Asia. This is the Scarborough origin story for one of the city's best-known food writers. In fact, he's also been called the unofficial food ambassador for Scarborough by the Toronto Star. My name is uh, Suresh Das. I am a food writer based out of Toronto. 
I grew up in Scarborough, but originally from Sri Lanka. So my story is that um, we moved to Canada from Sri Lanka because of the Civil War uh, as part of this uh, the second wave of the diaspora. We moved to Scarborough and we moved about 10 minutes just north of where we are on Shawarmaro right now. I met up with Suresh on a strip of one of Scarborough's busiest roads, known as Shawarmaro, right before sunset. As we spoke, the sun cast an orange glow across the parking lot where we stood. The beauty of the sunset in Scarborough is that most of the buildings are kind of low-slung, the plazas. So you have this really interesting ray of sunshine that kind of will illuminate certain buildings and kind of, you know, add, you know, bright spots to the, the overall facade. And it's something that after living downtown for over a decade, I really missed. My, like, teenagehood um, in Scarborough was spent exploring these plazas, driving around with friends after after school or like going to play pool somewhere and then grabbing a bite to eat. And the one thing that would always kind of be there was the sunset. Whether it was grabbing a, a burger at Johnny's on Victoria Park or whether it was coming here for shawarma. Suresh was first introduced to the plaza through his mom. Back in the 90s, shawarma row didn't exist. It was scattered mostly with Tamil-owned businesses, some of whose remnants remain. This is where our tour begins a plaza that's changed hands over the years, but is still reminiscent of cultures and flavors past. I must have driven by this plaza a hundred times, with its old signs and fading letters, never knowing of the vibrant history that once existed. My mom brought me here because her favorite Sri Lankan snacks shop called a short eats shop is in the middle of this plaza, which I'll take you to. And that sign is still there. That lady has moved on. But now, when you look around, all you see is just like shops and shops that are focusing on Middle Eastern cuisine. We line up at Shawarma Empire, just at the end of the long plaza Suresh is referring to. It's one of the many shawarma places in that area. Just across the street is Gadir, another well-known and well-loved restaurant. Toronto is a very interesting food city, has a very interesting food identity. Scarborough is like a completely separate thing. But when you talk about like defining like what is new Toronto cuisine, what could we claim as something that is our own? I would say I think part of that is shawarma and a large credit to shawarma empire for attributing to a large part of that. So the recipe here is 47, 50 years old, somewhere in that range. It's a family recipe. This place has been here, I want to say almost uh, 20 years. It is certainly one of the first places that I went to for shawarma growing up, because back in Sri Lanka, we never had shawarma. And um, I've always seen the idea of roast meat on a spit shaved off. And when I moved to Canada, it was in the form of a Greek salad in terms of like the idea of souvlaki. But like shawarma, in terms of like my first introduction to shawarma, it was this place. I still come here regularly because it is probably the gold standard when it comes to a very specific take on shawarma, which is this idea of Palestinian-style shawarma. Right, yeah. And shawarma is really regional only because of spices and because of the way they make the, the food that they make. The reason why I picked this place is because it kind of tells the story of Scarborough in a sense that this is the one place where, again, like this, this cliched way of saying that food brings us together is very outdated. Food can bring us together, but like growing up in my 20s and in my 30s coming here, you, you could see like this lineup that you're noticing right now, which is a lineup you would see every day, 
you know, pre-COVID. But you would see like people from all backgrounds in that line. Um, and during the day, it's like, you know, like could be white collar, blue, blue collar. And at night, it's like families and it's like taxi drivers that come in post-shift. So you literally see everyone coming here. But it's this idea of the, the fact that like shawarma has been adapted by every single culture that is living in Scarborough. A good example of that would be dishes like shawarma poutine, a spin on a Canadian classic, or jerk chicken shawarma, as served by Chris Jerk, a Jamaican restaurant. A lot of the cultural foods here over time have borrowed from one another, which is very much part of the evolution of food in general. The one thing I want to emphasize is the cuisines here are made for the people that live here, first and foremost, before they're made for top 10 lists. And that's always been one of the most beautiful things about this place to me. That if you pay attention to the clusters of restaurants that serve specific cuisines in neighborhoods across Scarborough, you really are getting a story about the people who live here and who set up shop to cater to their various communities. A good example of this is Aging Court, where my parents lived for a long time before moving to the neighborhood we live in now, Malvern, when I was three. I grew up in Aging Court. Lived most of my life in Scarborough and really love this community and really love living and being here. That's Howard Tam, an urban planner by trade, but also a tour guide with Eat More Scarborough Food Tour, who graciously agrees to take me on a sample tour so we can explore more of the sights and eats of Scarborough. So we are at the Sumi-licious smoked meat restaurant. Sumi is a wonderful, wonderful gentleman. He actually comes from Sri Lanka. His family comes from Sri Lanka and he immigrated to Canada and he actually started working in Montreal at Schwartz's, the famous smoked meat deli on Saint Laurent. He worked there for about 10 years and uh, after a little while he started making his own smoked meat at home, perfected his recipe and he decided to move to Toronto to open his own shop. And so the food you'll be tasting today is one of the best smoked meat in Toronto. Sumilicious is nestled in the very corner of a large bustling plaza. From where we stand, I can see a Uyghur restaurant, a Japanese takeout place, a doner shop, bubble tea, and that's just within my line of view. It's right here in Scarborough. Uh, what's really interesting is that I, I once asked Sumi why did he actually open all the way out here and not in downtown Toronto when he could be, he, his food could easily be selling out in downtown Toronto regularly. And he told me that when he worked at Schwartz's, one of the interesting things was that most of the clientele who came in were actually from Scarborough and from Markham. So he thought this was actually the best location for his restaurant and he's been doing really, really well. Walking into the restaurant, you see a wall of article clippings boasting the achievements of Sumilicious to date. They were rated Best Sandwich of the Year in 2019 by BlogTO and on the list of Yelp's top 100 restaurants in Canada. And this is my favorite, actually, article. It talks a little bit about the story of, of what happened. And the first paragraph says, you've got to check this place out. My mother hands me a business card for Sumilicious. It's a Sri Lankan guy doing Jewish food for Chinese customers. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the essence of lead. Scarborough, yeah. <laughs> right there. <laughs> I'd never been to Sumilicious before the tour, and deli meat isn't typically something that I get to eat because it's hard to find halal options. The owners are Catholic, so I was interested in why they chose to make their meat halal. Uh, hi, this is Shalika, Shalika de Fonseca. Uh, from Sumilicious, I'm the owner of Sumilicious. Me and my husband, uh, together we are doing the, the restaurant here. Uh, there's a large community in Scarborough requested halal. 
in, in the beginning we weren't halal. So why not, you know? We're serving all communities, we're getting all the, uh, all, all, it's, it's a multicultural city, so. We leave Sumilicious and continue our tour. One that takes us first to Yinji Changfen, where we have rice rolls, which Howard describes as rice flour crepe with vegetable, meat, or seafood filling rolled up and served with soy sauce. I also order a drink called the Yin Yang, a mix of coffee and tea over ice, which honestly changes my life. You like it? This is so good. You like it? As we drive, Howard fills me in on what his childhood experience of Scarborough food was like. And I think, like, Scarborough food has changed a lot um, over the years. I mean, I remember growing up here and there was definitely a lot more fast food, you know, burgers, subs, pizza, things like that. And a lot of the, you know, more diverse restaurants were only really coming in much later. Like, even um, when I, when we first got to Scarborough, I was about two or three. I remember there wasn't a lot of Chinese restaurants. There was like a few of them that almost every Chinese family went to. It, it wasn't actually until they opened the Dragon Center in Asian Court. This was 1984. That's when it really started to pick up. And there was a lot more like Chinese restaurants opening. And at the time, also a lot more immigration from Hong Kong was coming over. And uh, the neighborhood demographics were changing pretty rapidly as well. And it wasn't until I think like probably into like the late 90s, maybe even the early 2000s, that really started to see a lot more uh, like shawarma joints and um, other types of cuisines sort of coming up, right? Korean restaurants, right? Japanese restaurants, right? Things that I hadn't actually seen before in Scarborough starting to pop up. And that's when I, I felt that the food started to get cool. Last year, Howard was involved in the Dragon Center Stories Project which commemorated and gathered tales about the first indoor Chinese shopping center in all of North America. Dragon Center, as Howard mentioned, opened in 1984 on the site of a former roller skating rink. A bunch of Chinese shops moved in and it became somewhat of a mini Chinatown overnight. That created a lot of tension. <laughs> Surrounding community at the time was still fairly white. There was actually like hate literature distributed at one point. I remember actually attending uh, like a public meeting with my mom. This was like 1986, 87, somewhere around there. And I remember, you know, people getting up and saying, you know, like, we really don't want Hong Kong here. Like, these people should just go back home, right? Like, stuff like that. And, uh, and I just remember, like, you know, my mom actually being really sad about it uh, and upset as well. And um, that's what Asian court was in, in the late 80s. And if you look at the demographics now, it's completely changed. So Scarborough Asian Court, if you look at the demographics in the sort of census, it's like two-thirds people of East Asian descent. With the Chinese population increasing and a lot of the shops and food markets expanding to accommodate that palate, my parents definitely reaped some of the benefits. A lot of Chinese stores started growing. And the Chinese stores have a lot of the vegetables, the fruits that we are used to back home. The mangoes, the jackfruit, the guavas, the pineapple, anything you want, you can now go to the Chinese store and buy it. So that's at that point, it was unthinkable that you could get a mango or a jackfruit. They didn't even know that. They didn't know mango. How would they know jackfruit? But now you can get everything. I want it. I just go in and buy it. As Howard mentions, all of this is Scarborough history that doesn't typically get talked about. The city has a particular idea of what constitutes a heritage spot, 
and what history is worth being preserved. While the city preserves a Victorian and Edwardian-style buildings, for example, a lot of these buildings that we grew up in will soon be subject to development projects, especially as gentrification rolls in. For many of us, the small shops and strip malls and plazas, they mean something because they were the first institutions that paid attention to our cultural needs and advocated for our communities. A little part of Scarborough history also that like, I don't think often gets told or yeah. talked about, right, is how all these communities came together in Scarborough. And it's not just Chinese people, right? It's like, you know, the Indian community, the Jamaican community, right, coming here and like, you know, again, investing and like creating these restaurants and businesses and plazas, whole plazas, right, shopping malls. All of this is part of our history and our heritage. And a big part of the city's culture today leans heavily on the customs, vernacular, and food of folks from one particular region, the Caribbean. If you're from Scarborough, there's a good chance you have an opinion on which subway station has the best Jamaican patty. That alone could constitute an entire podcast episode of its own. But even with the rich history here, evidenced by the many roti and doubles and patties and jerk chicken shops, Scarborough still doesn't get its roses. When I asked Juyita, professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough, whether she thinks Scarborough gets the credit it deserves for its expansive food scene, she said, <laughs> Definitely not. You know, this is where race matters. That you can have this amazing restaurant. You, you know, we have places, uh, roti places, for instance, in Scarborough, which have managed to operate, you know, with a very strong round in the community with a huge amount of sweat equity from the people who work there have, you know, created amazing foods, but they're not recognized other than a small ethnic place, right? These places don't get the same attention as restaurants elsewhere. And this largely is linked to class and race. Why are some cuisines valued over others? Why are the restaurants here, with their years of experience and variety of ingredients and grueling work hours, not given any reverence? Cultural foods that make up Scarbo's food scene rarely get seen as prestigious. And we had this, you know, telling case that a number of us had commented on <laughs> when we were asked about it, that, for instance, you know, a downtown entrepreneur had claimed, yes, that I'm starting the first Caribbean, you know, restaurant showcasing Caribbean foods in the GTA. I mean, that was just a claim that was laughable, not just laughable, but also really, really problematic because you are really taking away, you are denying the histories. And those histories often are showcased at Scarborough in a way. So the next spot we hit is Rose's Halal Kitchen, a Jamaican restaurant on Shawarma Row, the same strip I visited with Suresh days before. When we walk in, we're greeted by the restaurant's namesake herself, Rose, and one of the employees who tells us a little about himself and how the restaurant came about. So my name is Elijah and I am one of the workers here at Rose's Halal Kitchen. So originally, I was kind of just craving some Jamaican food, especially a halal one, something that, as we all know, is very difficult to find. So I remember Googling it and I found it on, um, I think it was halalfoodie.com or some of those Muslim websites. So I came down and I ended up meeting their brother and we just had a very close connection, the, the owner. Me also being a Jamaican convert, him and his, and his mom being a Jamaican converts also. We just had that, that connection, that bond, you know what I mean? As Elijah says, recognizing the owners of the restaurant had converted to Islam, like him, helped him settle in and find community. And for Rose, the restaurant's journey has been quite a promising one. Her son and her were invited to the Halal Food Fest, 
an annual food festival in Toronto, and immediately they were a hit. They were able to secure a location and open up shop not too long afterwards. We have a lot of people coming from Montreal. We have a lot of people coming in from like the States, and they come here. Because like, they, they saw the, the post, and your friend tell them about the restaurant, and they've never had halal jerk chicken. We did grow up in Scarborough, so we know a lot of people in Scarborough. So we figured, why not start where we, you know, the grassroots, you know, like they would say, in Scarborough. Rose tells us that business has been okay during COVID, as the restaurant already has a large following that usually comes in for takeout anyway. But it does make me wonder, and worry, for the other businesses here. There are already a lot of factors in play when it comes to Scarborough's visibility as the food hub that I know it to be. For Suresh... A big aspect of that is Scarborough's distance from the downtown core and the lack of efficient transit within Scarborough itself. It's not easy to get around. And as someone who lives deep in Scarborough and fairly far from a subway line, I can tell you how frustrating it is to get anywhere if you don't have a car. My morning commute included a bus ride from the very east of Scarborough to the subway station, then the rapid transit line to Kennedy Station, then the subway into downtown core. That journey would take an hour and a half one way, give or take depending on delays and service issues. Then there's gentrification, which has already begun in many parts of Scarborough. Joyeta talks about Malvern as an example, which used to be a designated priority neighborhood. Many neighborhoods in Scarborough have this designation, though now they're called neighborhood improvement areas, which essentially means they've been identified by the city as places that, and I quote, need additional investments to combat specific problems, such as higher-than-average crime or a shortage of services. Priority areas were defined in 2005 in response to a perceived increase in gun crime and youth gang activity. Malvern lost its priority designation a few years back, which seems like a good thing because it means there's less of a perceived need. However, as Joyita points out, things like food security was still a huge issue for many people living here, even if house prices are higher. Being made dependent on those services and then getting cut off was detrimental in a lot of ways. And I think what this aspect of gentrification means in Scarborough, you know, many of those small mom and pop enterprises, as has been happening for the last few years in other parts of the city, are going to be struggling with rents and visibility maybe in a way that they didn't before when rents were low. She does add, though, that with more transit options available, there might be a chance for more visibility for the shops that aren't on major subway lines and might not get a lot of business. With gentrification, it's important to ensure that those places aren't priced out. For Howard, preservation of history and community is crucial as the landscape begins to change. If gentrification begins to price out the communities that originally settled here, there's a good chance they'll cease to exist as time goes on. And that'll change things, like the food scene, exponentially. These questions keep me up at night, especially with the pandemic affecting so many small businesses. Will the Scarborough of my youth survive all these changes? What will the food scene look like in five years? Or ten years? Will this podcast be all I have to share with my future children? In attempting to relay why this place is so special to me and countless others, Suresh sums it up nicely. I'm well-traveled. I, I'm a seasoned traveler. I've been to Queens. I've been to Malaysia. I've been to some of the, the most densely sort of clustered multicultural places of the world. And they're amazing. But Scarborough still tops those places. 
And I think when people judge Scarborough and say that it doesn't have as many cuisines defined, I think it's because those people haven't spent the time walking through the various corners of Scarborough. These places are gonna disappear because of time, because of COVID, because of a variety of things. My parting words are, like, I think just going back to the idea that Scarborough is a layer cake, and it's a place that you could spend a lifetime discovering and always find something new. Because it is a story of these families that are catering to these tiny, tiny microcosms of communities in tiny plazas with secret menus and secret code to get certain dishes. And you just need to expose yourself to it, and the more you expose, the delicious it gets. So go discover it. Go discover As my parents' generation gets older, the folks who originally opened doors and brought us snapshots of their homelands, now frozen in time, will eventually retire. And a new generation of cuisine will take over, one that represents our childhoods, the mix of the familiar and the foreign, the adopting and blending of tastes and cultures, a medley of unique experiences that can only truly be understood by folks who knew it, by those of us who lived it. This was my humble attempt to relay some of that magic and to capture some of it too. Scarborough's been known for a lot of things. It's changed rapidly over the years and I imagine that'll only continue, but I hope we never forget this moment and I hope you get a chance to check it out before it changes completely because I'd be really sad for you if you missed it. But don't just take it from us. I asked some kind folks to share their own Scarborough food stories. And I encourage you to go make your own, even if it's in your respective cities and the neighborhoods that don't get enough credit. As for me, I'll catch you in line. Hi, my name is Aruba. And I'm Shepard. And this is our Scarborough food story. When I was really young, I want to say grade school up through high school, every Saturday, me and my family would go out to eat, usually at a Somali restaurant in this area. I grew up on Guyanese food because I, myself, am Guyanese. And the one spot we used to frequent a lot was this place called Roland's. Standing outside Banchwati supermarket, eating Pani Puri, brought me right back to my childhood days in Oman. There's a restaurant called Fishman Lobster Clubhouse Restaurant, and they're famous for their giant tall stacks of lobster and crab. It was the place where, you know, if anyone visited from out of town, we would always have to bring them there because it was such good seafood. My favorite would be uh, Rose's. Um, it's a Jamaican place, and it honestly, their spice level is amazing, and it's a hole-in-the-wall kind of restaurant, but it's amazing food. Yeah, and all of these places are relatively, like, you can get a really hearty meal for under $10. Find us on Lawrence. Paradigm is presented by the Frequency Podcast Network. It's created by Annalisa Nielsen and me, Stephanie Phillips. This episode was written and produced by Radia Chaudhry and sound designed by Ryan Clark. With special thanks to Asad and Shamim Chaudhry, Suresh, Howard, Joyta, Henna for her assistance, and of course, the restaurant owners and operators interviewed. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying these stories, please let us know. You can write to us on Twitter at Frequency Pods, or you can rate and review the show in any podcast player that will allow it. <laughs>